0: topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative dietitian Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 307
1: of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for how soil health impacts your health. In today's episode, we will be unpacking the essential role of viable soil and the threat of industrialist farming on our food security and safety. Our guest, Alan Williams, is a wealth of knowledge as a sixth-generation farmer who has authored more than 400 scientific articles and professionally consults and leads regenerative agriculture programs.
2: Yes. Before we get into his highly credentialed bio i just want to share what is all coming in today's episode so we definitely nerd out all about soil and the importance of soil fertility and how when you work with a robust microbiome and microecology in your soil you don't have to use soil amendment the vicious cycle of the cat and mouse game of too much input and amendments and how that causes toxicity to the plants that are grown as well as the animals that eat those plants and then the byproducts from those animals back into the soil and perpetuating dead soil which can drive erosion and ultimately threaten the ability to grow food in our country so this is definitely a timely article as we're looking at food costs rising and insecurity of food sources across the board and definitely we also talk about even solutions that you can do in your own household and how to stay connected and vote with your dollar to ensure you're supporting your whole household so before we get into Alan's bio and welcome him onto our show I want to share an ad from NutriSense who is our sponsor of today's episode we had the pleasure of meeting the team from NutriSense just a couple months back at KetoCon which was so much fun and uh, really had a great time meeting Kara and Dan and the rest of the team we are big fans of a continuous glucose monitor which is what Nutrisense offers they provide you a CGM which is going to look real-time glucose data for 14 days you wear your CGM sensor and 24 7 you're going to see the behavior of your blood sugar and how your diet your stress your exercise your supplementation and even your sleep can play an influence on your blood glucose values, thus driving or aiding in prevention of diabetes. So you're able to make modify variables on lifestyle changes, diet strategy, so maybe adjusting the amount of carbohydrates you're eating in your evening meal to sleep better with balanced blood sugar throughout the night. And sometimes that actually means adding a resistant starch versus going to a zero carb gram meal and we also will learn about when we wear a cgm the ever important impact of stress which i found personally to be the most validating and helped me to make some lifestyle change to support blood sugar regulation i noticed with diet i was staying in the 80s but when i got really stressed my blood sugar could go up to a diabetic range of the 140s and beyond and there's no way of knowing that if you're not wearing a cgm to get that real-time data A hemoglobin A1C, like a three-month average, can often overlook dynamic spikes, which could definitely be life and health threatening. So a high recommendation of really valuable data you can get when you partner up with getting a meter from NutriSense. As a podcast sponsor and partner of ours, they allow you to do a one-time purchase versus subscription model. So you go on over to NutriSense.io slash Allie Miller RD. And when you use that link, scroll all the way down, and you'll see my face on that page. Scroll all the way down and it'll say for podcast listeners, you can get the meter for $175 for a one-time use. You can also, if you know that you're going to want to nerd out and use a CGM multiple times, use the code RD. and you can use the code AlliRD under any page. And this is within a subscription, but you are going to save $30 off that first monthly subscription purchase. So you can use rd to save that $30 off your subscription or go to Nutrisense.io. Slash Allie Miller RD and scroll down to the bottom for that one time opportunity of use.
1: All right, let's read Alan's bio and then we'll bring him on the podcast. Alan Williams is a sixth generation family farmer and founding partner of Understanding Ag, the Soil Health Academy, and Regenified. He has consulted with more than 4,000 farmers and ranchers in the US, Canada, Mexico, and 30 plus other countries on individual operations ranging from a few acres to over 2 million acres. He is a recovering academic, having served 15 years on the faculty at Louisiana Tech University and Mississippi State University. He holds a BS and MS in animal science from Clemson University and a PhD in genetics and physiology from LSU. He has authored more than 400 scientific and popular press articles, is an invited speaker at regional, national, and international conferences and symposia. Alan and his colleagues specialize in whole farm and ranch planning based on the concept of regenerative agriculture. They've worked in all 50 U.S. states and a total of 34 countries. In the U.S., they are currently working across 32 million acres in regenerative transition. He has been featured on the Carbon Nation film series, Carbon Cowboys, on the Dr. Oz Show, ABC Food Forecast News, and in a Regenerative Secret, the Farmer's Footprint film series and the Sacred Cow film series.
2: Hey, Alan, welcome to the Naturally Nourished podcast.
3: Hello. Good to be here.
2: Yeah, we're excited to have you on. We have touched on the concept of regenerative agriculture. We had our friends out here from Fredericksburg, Katie and um, Taylor Taylor yep. from Rome Ranch talk about their buffalo use of land. So our our, our audience should be somewhat familiar, and we've had, we've uh, had Joel Salton yeah. on. Uh, but I would love to hear from you, really, just kind of jumping off the bat, why soil health matters, and and maybe touching on concerns and what's happening with soil erosion.
3: Oh, you bet, boy! That is a going for it. (laughs) Very pertinent topic in today's world. But uh, I'll, I'll start with this: soil health matters because it impacts everything and everybody. That that's that's really the bottom line. You know, all life starts from the foundation of soil. The health of all that life starts from the foundation of the soil and the health of our climate quite frankly starts from the health of the soil.
2: So uh, let's talk about why soil is becoming depleted and and why we're even thinking about it you know I think most people think of it as an anchor it holds vegetation in place (laughs) why does soil matter?
3: Yeah you know that that is the problem so so we'll first talk briefly about the problem and And that is that over the last several decades, we have become so heavily reliant on a very specific type of agriculture that, frankly, it's only been the last several decades that we have done agriculture this way, you know. Um, But it's an agriculture that is that is reliant on highly specialized monoculture production systems. It is an agriculture that is highly reliant on a lot of inputs. And of course, we know that those inputs rely and are dependent on synthetic fertilizers and on many different types of chemicals, chemicals that we call pesticides that comprise are comprised of herbicides, fungicides, and insecticides. So that that is where agriculture has morphed. And we also have the largest, most uh, highly technological equipment that we've ever had before. We can actually destroy more ground a lot yeah. quicker than we ever could before. And, and we have become so in, in embraced, so to speak, in this feed the world mantra that we are trying to feed the world through any means, not understanding that there are serious unintended consequences as a result of that. And and so because of this last several decades of highly specialized, monoculture-oriented, chemically-dependent agriculture, we have seen significant and severe depletion of our soils through both water erosion, wind erosion, We have seriously harmed our soil, biological health, the microbes of the soil. And we have harmed the ability of that soil to be able to transfer nutrients to our foods. So because of that, our foods have become significantly less nutrient dense. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. And that's a major issue (laughs) as dieticians that we see all the time, you know, screening our clients for mineral deficiency. And we now see magnesium deficiency is one of the number one deficiencies in our population. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the, the erosion issue and food security. And like, if we keep going this way, I've heard estimations that we have 60 years left. I've heard 10 years left at the rate we're going. What, what are we looking at in terms of how this is going to impact food security down the line and and if we keep going this trajectory how bad is it going to get
3: well if you look at if we just take north america right now it's a perfect example we are experiencing incredible weather extremes and of course this has been going on for a while but each year these weather extremes are, are becoming more significant and more prolonged, Uh, but right now we are seeing more than two-thirds of the U.S. under drought conditions. So, you know, we started seeing the drought occur a few years ago in the western portion of the U.S., and it has only become more and more pronounced with each passing year, and this year has certainly been no different, but what has happened this year is the drought has crept steadily eastward to now. If you look at the current drought monitor, you'll note that we actually have drought spreading from the Pacific all the way to the Atlantic coast. So these challenges that we're facing and the potential for food shortages are actually right here, right now. You know, if if what we're seeing presently continues, we're going to see significant crop damage and harm this very year that wasn't anticipated just two or three months ago. That that that's the problem, and the reason that it has become so exasperated. I have I work a lot with meteorologists with the National Weather Service, and uh, and and one of my really good friends, Dr. Dud. Doug Gillum, he is a uh, three-time North American forecasting champion. And he used to be on the faculty at Mississippi State University as as a professor in meteorology, but he now is with the National Weather Service. And Doug and I have talked about this a lot. Drought breeds drought, moisture breeds moisture. So the more drought conditions you create and exasperate, the more drought, you are going to have, the higher your temperatures are going to be, well, guess where we are right now? Across much of North America. Yeah. So we're seeing the very things that Doug and I have been talking about for years and they are occurring right now before our very eyes.
2: And I think important also, maybe we can dig into the, when soil is viable, I saw a really cool model, Becky and I harvested our first turkey, (laughs) Out okay. at Rome, and they did a very cool uh, model where they had urban, uh, you know, like ground. Maybe it was sidewalk and something else. They had a, you know, someone's yard landscape, and then a, a typical farm that's pretty sterilized, dead soil, and then their regenerated soil. And they had a, you know, spraying like a like a watering device, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was showing, you know, how the runoff versus the water to actually sequester, and how much water was wasted versus absorbed. Um, Can you speak to that a little bit about how how that biodiversity and bringing the soil back to life matters to sequester the already limited resource? And then does that play chicken and egg and then help to cool things down, I would assume, and regulate drought?
3: Yes, absolutely. Uh, So I'll start with this. You cannot create aggregated soil, the sticking together of soil particles, to create pore space in the soil for water infiltration and oxygenation of the soil through mechanical means or through chemical means. The only way that we can create aggregation in the soil is through soil biology and especially through building soil mycorrhizal fungi populations. They produce these biotic glues that are critical to creating highly aggregated soil that can then do a far better job of infiltrating rainfall and irrigation water and snow melt and things like that and retain that water in the root zone. So here's what we're finding. We have done hundreds of thousands of water infiltration tests in soils all across North America. So not just here in the US, but Canada, Mexico and so forth. And we're finding way too often that too many of our soils in our row crop fields, in our vegetable fields, in our orchards, and in our pastures have infiltration rates of less than a half inch of rainfall or irrigation water an hour, okay? That's very, very poor. That means that the vast majority of rain that falls will never infiltrate. it's going to pond and pool and run off and/ or evaporate and be gone. Uh, and of course if it runs off, now we've got more nutrient leaching, more topsoil loss, more dead zones, and more erosion. So we need aggregated soil. However, to contrast that, so in way too many of our farm fields and pastures, remember that, figure I gave you less than a half inch an hour infiltration rate. But in the vast majority of the farms and ranches that are practicing regenerative agriculture, we see water infiltration rates exceeding 10 to 20 inches an hour. So it's an absolute incredible contrast between the capacity of the two soils to be able to infiltrate water. It's a huge, huge difference. And meaning
1: that even if we got that soaking rain that we're praying for, like mm-hmm. here in Texas, for example, you know, those those farms that only have the half inch capacity aren't going to absorb it mm-hmm. into the soil and be able to utilize it.
3: So so let's put this on pretty simple terms. To your point, that means that the vast majority of these farms and ranches, and like the ones you speak of in Texas. Whenever they get an inch of rain, they only infiltrated two-tenths to three-tenths wow. of that inch. So they did not get an inch. So we, we often say, as we talk to farmers and ranchers, that an inch is not an inch. It doesn't matter what falls from the sky. What matters is what you actually infiltrate and retain. That's wild. Yeah, most definitely. Let's,
2: let's cover a little bit before we're going to get into the good things and what you can do, (laughs) but I want to talk about, you mentioned, you know, mechanical, I'm assuming you're talking about tilling and such. I I want to talk about a little bit of like what you see as the most disastrous interventions. Um, so we mentioned herbicides, fungicides, insecticides, uh, maybe have they been u- being used in increasing amounts decade by decade as well? Or there's always new developing products or we're creating this chicken and egg where when you amend, you need to then add more amendment, more amendment. And then and then kind of what are those mechanical processes that are really creating disruption as well?
3: So I'll start by saying it's all of the above. Okay. Uh, and we have a rule that we teach that is called the rule of compounding which means there never are any singular effects. Everything we do and every decision we make creates compounding, cascading effects. And those effects are never negative, or, or excuse me, they're never neutral. They're either positive or negative, okay? So what is happening here is we have been creating a lot of negative compounding and cascading effects. So yes, Tillage can be highly destructive. There is no doubt about it. We see it over and over again. By the way, the 1930s dust bowl was created Mm -hmm. by tillage.
2: Oh, okay.
3: Okay. Yeah, the massive dust storms that we're seeing today. Remember, we didn't have the chemicals then, right? Right. Right. The massive dust storms that we're seeing today since 2011 are created by tillage. Okay, bare ground, bare soil. Uh, So tillage is very, very destructive. It's highly disruptive of our soil biology. It completely destroys and breaks up our mycorrhizal fungi in the soil. It destroys the soil aggregate, so the soil then collapses on itself and crusts over top, and it makes it a lot harder to infiltrate and retain water. Uh, But make no mistake, the use of all of our chemicals, the herbicides, insecticides, fungicides, has increased dramatically in the last four decades. It hasn't decreased at all. Mm -hmm. In spite of the fact that we keep touting all of these technical and scientific advancements like genetically modified seed for plants that supposedly were modified, so we would use less of these things. Mm-hmm. right and you know we're we're seeing so we're seeing more and more herbicides applied we're seeing more fungicides applied than ever before and glyphosate was originally used you know just as an original burn down to get rid of weeds before planting now it's used throughout the entire growing season in way too many fields and it's even used as a desiccant close to harvest to dry crops down oh, to wow. make them easier to harvest and store. So, so what we have done is we have found more frequent and newer uses of all of these chemicals. Wow.
2: And that's, I love the, that, that comp- rule of compounding. It's very similar with our approach with functional medicine. You know, when you look at symptom management and you're not working with the root cause, we will often see undesirable effects. And when you go from that root cause, we know that then you can get that symbiosis or that synergy of beneficial outcomes. Um, before we get into regenerative agriculture, which I know we'll do all of that, right. It's going to enhance the nutrient density. It's going to enhance soil viability and water absorption, all of those things. Um, I want to touch a little bit on with ranchers, Um, some of the amendments. And I I know, you know, prophylactic use of antibiotics for one, I I think last time I I got this stat was 2010 when I was doing a presentation um, at a hospital on antibiotic resistant drugs. And at that time it was, I believe 74% of the antibiotics that were available for the U S we're being used prophylactically in confined animal farming operations. I I can only assume that's gone up. I know in the medical field, we're only seeing more MRSA and C diff and these really, uh, powerful super bugs because of the antibiotics being rendered useless, essentially from that over-application. anything else you kind of, we want to call out before we move on to the good (laughs) in the world of maybe ranching and, and how things are being done differently.
3: well, certainly we are we have been using a copious amount of subtherapeutic antibiotics in a lot of livestock production so you know no doubt about it that 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 is the case and and I'm a livestock producer myself however you know I'll, I'll have to be straight up with you we do not use subtherapeutic antibiotics at all you know? okay. uh, so you can do it and you can do it very profitably without that it, it what matters is how you raise and produce those animals. Yeah. Uh, now, that being said, here's the other problem with all of these subtherapeutic antibiotics. So, you know, they're used principally in, in our CAFO systems, uh, in, in the large vertically integrated poultry and swine operations. In our cattle feedlots and that type of thing, so that's where the majority of the subtherapeutic use is occurring. Right. But then, right. what's happening to those manures that right. are produced right. in those CAFO systems? Those manures are then purchased by farmers and spread over their fields. So we're taking these subtherapeutic antibiotics, mm-hmm. and we're now spreading them spreading them over our fields as well. And what do antibiotics do? You know, well, they, they harm and kill bacteria. So now we're harming our soil bacteria because we're applying manures that have antibiotics in them to our soils on a more and more frequent and higher rate basis. But then the third thing that I'll mention here is that glyphosate, what we commonly call Roundup, that is so copiously used now uh, is a patented antibiotic. So when we use glyphosate, we're also creating antibiotic issues in the soil. Mm. So again, the rule of compounding, this is coming from multiple sources, multiple directions.
2: Yes. And then those animals that are the confined operations aren't aiding in supporting the soil breakdown because they're not walking on the soil, they're standing in factories. So there's that too, I would assume that plays a role.
3: Yes, absolutely.
2: Let's get to what
1: regenerative agriculture is, how things would look different in this model um, and what some of the kind of big overarching, I guess, benefits that you see are.
3: I'll be very happy to address that. So first of all, let's define regenerative agriculture. Uh, you know, there there's a lot of different definitions that are being bantied about out there. Uh, but this we eat, live, and breathe regenerative agriculture every day. This is what we do. Yeah. And We do it personally on our own farms, and we work with thousands of farmers and ranchers, not just here in North America, but across the world. So we define regenerative agriculture like this. It is farming and ranching in synchrony with nature and the four ecosystem processes to repair, restore, rebuild and revitalize ecosystem function, starting with life beneath the soil and expanding to life above. That is how we define
2: That's beautiful. I want it on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> We're stealing
1: that for the episode quote, for yep. sure. You'll be quoted. <laughs> Please feel free to do so.
3: <laughs> Great. Love it. So let's so, dig into
2: a little bit. Yeah, what does that mean?
3: Yeah. So, so it means that rather than working against nature, as we have actually been taught to do okay we and so we're working against nature and we're blaming nature you know, everything is nature's fault i'm getting too much rain i'm not getting enough rain it's too cold it's too hot whatever the case may be and and boy are we farmers bad about complaining about stuff like that right but and as a farmer i can call a spade a spade uh but here's the deal If we work with nature, then we find that things become far better, far easier, far more productive, and far more resilient. And those four ecosystem processes that I mentioned, they are the four things that are free to us as farmers every day of every year. Mm -hmm. And they are the energy cycle, the sun, photosynthesis, right? Okay. So the energy cycle, the water cycle, the mineral cycle, and what we call community dynamics in the biology or in nature. Okay, so those are the four things that are free to us every day. But those are the four things we have been fighting quite heavily in agriculture. And as you know, over the last several years, every single input cost for all of us farmers and ranchers, has doubled, tripled, and quadrupled Mm -hmm. in a very short period of time. So why do I want to increase my reliance on all of those inputs when instead I can increase my reliance on the four ecosystem processes that are free for me to capture every day? And But here's what has to happen. As a farmer and as a rancher, you cannot implement what you do not know. So in order to successfully implement regenerative agriculture and maximize your capture of the four ecosystem processes, you've got to take time to educate yourself. That is so important, so critical, and that's why we spend a ton of our time doing just that, you know, we have our, our understandingag.com and our soulhealthacademy.org websites are loaded with free information for farmers and ranchers, podcasts, webinars, articles, presentations, and so recommended reading and so forth that is available to them to begin that journey of learning. And we, we, it really to do it successfully, you also need to combine that with some kind of hands on training. That's why we formed the Soil Health Academy to be able to provide that intimate, in the field, hands on training so they can be more successful. So, that's the beginning point. Educate yourself as a farmer, as a rancher, so you can be successful. And we call it the six, three, four. Okay. The six principles of soil health, the three rules of adaptive stewardship, and the four ecosystem processes. So we implement the six principles and the three rules within context of every individual farm. And that's key here, the context. Sure. Optimize the four ecosystem processes.
1: Okay, so we got the four ecosystems. What are the six? What are the six and
3: what are the three? Yep, so the six principles of soil health and I'll name them very quickly. Number one is context. Context. That's where we often fail. Regenerative agriculture is not prescriptive or formulaic in nature. It's not a recipe. Okay. We have tried to turn agriculture into a recipe like you would use in your kitchen cooking your food. It doesn't work out in nature and out in biology. I can control the environment in my kitchen, but I can't control a darn thing out on my farm with nature. So so when we try to implement recipes or prescriptions, we almost always find ourselves getting into trouble over time. So regenerative agriculture must be non-prescriptive. It must be what we call adaptive at all times. So therefore, that first principle of context is so very important. You got to first identify your context of your farm or your ranch before you can properly implement the other principles. So context is the first one. The second one is minimize disturbance to the soil. And that means minimize tillage, minimize chemical applications, minimize applied manures, and so forth. So minimize disturbance. The third one is keep your soil covered year round. We call it keeping armor on the soil. So keep something living or even plant residue covering your soil. Do you realize that for the vast majority of our row crop farms in North America, they only have a living plant growing in that soil one-third of the year. The other two-thirds of the year, that soil is bare. It is exposed to the elements. So that third principle of keeping the soil covered or armored is crucial. The fourth one is keep living roots in the ground year-round. So when you harvest a cash crop, plant cover crops mm-hmm. so that you have living roots and plants growing in between the cash crops. Love it. Okay. The fifth one is diversity and this means diversity of everything. Diversity in the crop rotations, diversity in our cover crop mixes, diversity in insects and bird species and microbes in the soil encourage and facilitate diversity. And the final one, the sixth principle, is integrate livestock whenever possible. Livestock properly grazed through what we call adaptive grazing are an incredibly powerful tool and catalyst to building soil health much more rapidly than we could ever do without them. So those are the six principles. The three rules of adaptive stewardship are the rule of compounding, which we talked about earlier, the rule of diversity, so now you hear diversity again, that's how important it is, it's repeated in the rules, Mm -hmm. as well as the principles. And then finally, what we call the rule of disruption. And what that means is, again, as I said earlier, we cannot be prescriptive or formulaic. We've got to be adaptive. And to do that, we need to be able to introduce what we call planned purposeful disruptions in our agricultural systems to be able to keep things growing and responding. And let me give you an analogy to that, that I think everyone in your audience can understand. If you take an elite athlete, how does that athlete continue to perform at ever higher levels? Do they do the same exercise routine at the same duration and intensity, day in and day out, year in and year out? Nope. If they did that, they would hit a plateau and then they would start digressing. So every athlete, if they want to continue to improve, knows that they have to introduce planned purposeful disruptions into their exercise routine that continue to challenge their bodies and their minds to continue to grow in whatever their sport is. Likewise with nature, we're biology Nature is comprised of biology. All biology responds similarly. It needs planned purposeful disruptions to challenge it. These acute, not chronic, but acute challenges that cause everything in nature to respond with resilience and to grow.
2: I love it, Alan. That's what we, we talk a lot about this process of hormesis, right? This right. stimulus or the stressor that in the human body, at least as an analogy makes the body make more antioxidant or makes the body create more of an anti-inflammatory effect, like taking a cold plunge, for instance, and things like that. Um, so I'm kind of liking that to, to what you're explaining there. I have so many little questions now that have popped into my brain. <laughs> so I'm trying to organize them. This is really thorough and wonderful. Um, I want to just, let's dissect just in a, one aspect in a deeper way, just the fertility of the soil. So, you know, we think of instead of conventional fertilizer application, um, I read back in a decade ago or so, you know, this dumbing down of fertilizers being the NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, I believe was kind of what was assumed only to be needed in the soil. Um, let's talk about specifically how one would more, um, strategically or whole wholesomely fertilize in a regenerative approach, and how many different nutrients can be included in more of a holistic approach or a regenerative approach?
3: Absolutely. So, yes, our soils are comprised of far, far more than just N, P, and K, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Uh, But you're absolutely correct. We have somehow dumbed it down so much that we think MPK applications are the be-all end-all and we're producing great crops that are nutrient dense and healthy and wholesome for us. Just simply not true. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are not dozens, not hundreds, but thousands of nutrients in the soil, both nutrients and phytonutrients. And to dumb it all the way down to a mere handful is doing a disservice to our soils, to our plants, to our environment, and to us. Um, you know, so what we have found is this, the vast majority of our soils are not truly mineral deficient, nutrient deficient. Okay, We, have, we perform tests called the TND, that stands for Total Nutrient Digestion. It's a complete extraction of the soil. The vast majority of soil tests are a partial extraction and they detect less than 10% of the nutrients in the soil and only the nutrients that are immediately plant available. That's it. Okay. So when we look at a standard soil test, it's very misleading in that regard. Now, it's purposeful in that it's designed to tell us what is immediately plant available, but it is wholly ignoring the bounty of other nutrients that are there. The t and test exposes that. We have done, again, hundreds of thousands of these all over North America, and we have yet to find a soil that is truly deficient in any element, any mineral. So what's the deal? The deal is this those elements, those nutrients are bound in the soil. They're not available for plant uptake and they're bound because we have so damaged the soil biology. Mm. It is the job of that soil biology to be in constant communication with the plants growing in that soil and to respond to that plant on a 24-7, 365 basis. When that plant says, I need a little more nitrogen, I need a little more boron or sulfur or aluminum or magnesium or whatever the case may be, then if we've got that active, highly populated soil biology, microbiology, then they're feeding the plants little by little on a time release, just in time basis. Okay. We have completely interrupted that. We have created a negative feedback system. So here's what happens. And y'all understand the physiology of the body. So think of the soil microbes and the soil and the plant as one intact functioning organism. And physiology works in that organism just like it works in our bodies. So you can have positive feedback and negative feedback with our hormones, right? With our endocrine system. So you do in the microbe soil plant organism. So if we're applying a lot of over the top synthetic fertilizers or even way too many KFO composted manures, we are producing a negative feedback system that is telling that plant, I don't have to communicate with the microbes in the soil to tell them to go capture nutrients for me because I've, I've got it being applied to me. So the plants get lazy, they quit producing exudates to feed to the microbes and the microbes get lazy and they quit capturing nutrients to feed to the plants. And that is the very situation that we find ourselves trapped in. Again, it's, it wasn't intended. It's one of those unintended consequences, but it is very real. So the bottom line is this. We have, if we implement principles and practices that restore soil biology, we can completely do away with over-the-top applied fertilizers. We haven't used any fertilizer ourselves for more than a dozen years. My good partner and friend Gabe Brown has not used any fertility whatsoever since 2007 and we are producing more and more crops and forages than we ever have before without any applied fertilizers.
1: Which is amazing, and and that thing you said that the plants get lazy and the microbes get lazy. You know, we've talked on here about the antioxidant capacity um, in you know regeneratively farmed produce is so much higher um, when we look at the actual nutrient um, impact of these foods. So, I guess what are the big highlights of of nutrient impact, and and what are a couple of examples of things that you do in this regenerative approach instead of just that applied fertilizer.
3: Yep. So uh, again, this is where diversity of plant species becomes critical along with the proper livestock integration. Uh, When you combine those two together, they are an incredibly powerful tool to rebuild soil, to restore soil microbiology and build their populations to an extent that they can be highly functional so you know diversity in plants creates greater diversity in soil microbial species because now you have a far greater array of root plant root exudates being produced and spewed into the soil to feed those microbes and attract them and as we increase plant species diversity, we also attract more beneficial insects and pollinators and birds. So we see an incredible array of other life attracted to this diversity, not just our livestock. But when we combine livestock with that plant species diversity, we get an an entire host of positive compounding and cascading effects occurring. So the livestock, in their action of moving across the fields and foraging or eating from these plants, they stimulate these plants to go hyperactive in terms of photosynthesis, okay, and those plants are creating and spewing into the soil a far higher array and quantity of root exudates to feed an ever-growing population of soil microbes. That in turn is increasing the soil aggregate, increasing water infiltration, water retention, the aerobic capacity of the soil. And that in turn is allowing these plants to be able to take up a far greater array of nutrients and phytonutrients from the soil due to the higher level of activity of the microbes. Our animals eat those more phytonutrient rich plants and their meat and milk and eggs and so forth are much higher in phytonutrient richness. So we just see, again, this incredible positive compounding cascading effect when we combine plant species diversity with animal impact. Now, the animals are also doing a couple of other things that are very important. The manure and the urine that is dropping out of the rear end of those animals contains the same microbiome as exists in the soil from the plants they just eat, you know, consumed right? So they're dumping back out the same microbiome and continuing to replicate it in the soil. They are stimulating the latent seed bank through their hoof action to increase germination of more species of plants, hence greater biodiversity of plants. They are shedding billions of microbes in their saliva from their hair coat and in their manure and urine. So they are contributing overall to the microbial population in the soil. And of course their manure and urine is new fertility that is immediately available for plant uptake. So these animals are an incredible tool for us to much more rapidly restore, micro, you know, microbiological activity in the soil, nutrient cycling in the soil and building new soil organic matter and carbon, even sequestering far more carbon. The more they graze and the more those plants photosynthesize to recover from that grazing, the more carbon we are sequestering and putting back into the soil
1: that was our next question. You got it.
2: (laughs) When you said number six, I was like, I, I had a, wanted to debunk the methane carbon production from ruminants and how they can sequester, um, anything deeper you can unpack there. I don't know if there's any stats you're aware of, or just kind of what's shifted, because I think that that's, I saw your contribution to carbon cowboys. And I think that that's unfortunately another time right now in media and culture, in public policy, in billions of dollars of, of investments that are off-sided. We're talking about these, you know, vegetable-based. Uh, impossible burgers. We've done all of the episodes on don't eat chemical shit storms, (laughs) eat real food, but you know, um, let's just touch a little bit more on, on the carbon sequestering ability of ruminants. And I just keep for our listeners. It's so interesting. I just am always inspired how it's like going back to God, going back to nature and the less is more of of just kind of trusting the, the resource that we have out there. But let's talk a little bit more about how we don't need to create things to sequester carbon, how it could be just so available. And if we adjust our agriculture
3: yeah absolutely so first and foremost i want to i want to make sure that the myth of carbon is cleared up right away in that you know we have way too many people that believe now that what we need to do with carbon is just simply suck it out of the air and sock it away under the ground permanently never to be heard from again if if we could do that and let's let's pray we can never achieve that because if we do, life will cease to exist yeah, on this sure. earth. Uh, carbon is, was, and always was meant to be cycled. Cycled. Mm-hmm. It must be cycled. It is. It is the core of all life. We are made up of carbon, as y'all well know. You know, every every living creature is made up of carbon. So we require carbon daily in our diets. Um, so, it's meant to be cycled. Now, that being said, yes, that means to cycle it, we've got to continuously sequester it, bring it back into the soil, right? Mm-hmm. So, how do we do that? How do we do that effectively and efficiently? Well, proper grazing, the mimicking nature, eco mimicry, biomimicry, the way we graze, we call it adaptive grazing because what we are doing is we are adapting to ever-changing conditions of nature, just like occurred with the wild ruminants. So we once had, you know, tens of millions to hundreds of millions of wild ruminants that roamed the North American continent and many other continents. Um, and, you know, the way that they graze created the tremendous fertility and carbon stocks that the early settlers, European settlers in North America found and discovered. It was because of those wild grazing ruminants and those very diverse prairies and grasslands that existed. So we're recreating that through regenerative agriculture. We're using our livestock to emulate the way that the wild ruminants once grazed and moved across this landscape and grazing it the same way that they did. And here's what we have found. We have documented being able to sequester as much as 7.4 tons per acre of carbon annually using adaptive grazing. Uh, Now you compare that to anything else. Uh, Pine forests that are so prevalent in the southeastern US where I live are gonna do good over the life of that pine forest to sequester an average of 1 to 1.4 tons per acre per year. And yet we can do far, far better than that with grazing. Uh, The truth is, with proper grazing, our forests cannot compete. They are pretty decent carbon sinks, but they don't even compare to the carbon sink of a well-managed and grazed grassland.
1: Amazing and just reiterates, I think the the need for you know livestock as as part of this model. And yes, Allie and I will be shouting it from the mountaintops. And and then you know it's not only more. Uh, it's better for the soil, but it's also better for the body, and we've right. covered that. I think
2: both as recovering vegans, yes, That's exactly. A part of our uh-huh. aha, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. these guys, these guys play a role. They're really important, and yep. we can do this in yep. a way that makes sense.
1: Yep, <laughs> and is delicious too. <laughs> exactly. Um, in your bio, you um, claimed the title "recovering academic." Uh-huh. <laughs> so I want to hear um, what it means to be a recovering academic and, and the transition for from academia back to agriculture, um, because I think, you know, a lot of us right now are feeling the importance of more doing more hands on more getting your hands in the soil versus like learning, studying, reading the books. And I know there's some of both um, yes. in what you do, but but let's talk about that.
3: Absolutely. So, yes, I had a 15 year academic career um, and, you know, at the end of those 15 years, I was a full professor tenured, of course, you know, so uh, in, you know, in academia, you know what tenure means. They can't get rid of you unless you do something exceedingly stupid. Uh, So I had it made in that world. You know, I was very good at what I did. I won teaching awards. I won research awards. Uh, You know, I brought in you know a a good amount of grant dollars. I had you know quite a few peer-reviewed articles published. Uh, So, in the trappings of that world, you know, I I lived up to the expectations. Um, And honestly, when I started that academic career, I thought I would retire doing that but as I got more and more into that I started discovering that first and foremost the academic freedom that I was taught by my major professor in graduate school really didn't exist Mm. and you did the research that you could get grant funding for you know dollars for that's what you did Right. Uh, and, uh, and that's the reality of it, because to achieve tenure and promotion, it is heavily, heavily reliant on grant monies that you bring in and peer-reviewed articles you push out. Those are the two major requirements for tenure and promotion. So you do whatever you can get grant monies for. It doesn't matter whether it's really relevant to the people that I called our stakeholders or not, you know, the farmers and ranchers and the consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what I found us doing more and more as researchers and academicians was what I now refer to as putting a band aid on a gushing wound. Mm. We were always looking at and developing ways to treat the symptoms and never the root cause. And after 15 years in and coming to the full realization of that, and that I could not change that within the formal university setting, it was so heavily entrenched that I had two choices. I either had to ignore what I had learned (laughs) and keep doing what I was doing until I could retire, or I had to get out. And, you know, when you've got that guaranteed paycheck, all the benefits you could ever want, and you're fully tenured, that's an incredibly hard decision to make uh, because you're giving all your security up, all of it. And But I made the decision. Now, it's not that I wasn't terrified. Okay, I was. uh, But I made the decision. And I resigned, and I went back into farming and ranching full-time, regenerate, but doing it regeneratively. But I still had a lot to learn about that, so and I learned a lot of that by trial and error, I assure you. Um, and I also started doing a lot of consulting, and I learned a ton through the consulting as well. And that's what I've been doing ever since. I resigned from the university in the year 2000. So for the last 22 years, this has been my life, regenerative agriculture, doing it, teaching it, advocating it, promoting it.
2: Love it. And, you know, because of that integrity choice, and also I'm sure not only the financial risk and insecurity there, but the physical laborious impact (laughs) with another transition from the comfort of professor world, I'm sure air conditioning to name one and, all of that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sure when you get to the dinner table, you feel like you've done a harder day work. Um, but you really kept your six generations of family farming alive and, and it would have otherwise, it sounds like ended. Uh, it sounds yes. like what, yes. a, what a fantastic choice and resource that we're all benefiting from. Um, I, I just want to two more questions we have before we let you go. This has been a really great conversation. Uh, one, which one do we want to go on the more controversial one first? Yeah, so controversial. Okay. okay. And then we'll talk about some applications in the household because sure. when you were naming your six principles, I was like, okay, we put pine needles down. That's our cover, I think. And so we'll, we'll do a little bit of that, but let's talk first about our biggest concerns to food security. So, you know, we talked about dead soil and, and the importance of maintaining that diverse, robust microecology as, as a real big emphasis, of course, to all life and quality of life. Um, what, from your perspective, should Americans be concerned about as far as food security? Um, I I've been reading things on, obviously there's been tons of food shortages and a lot of fluke incidents going on. And then, then there's the purchase of rural land by tech investors. I know Bill Gates, I believe just surpassed highest landowner farm land. We're seeing that we're outsourcing farmland to China and other countries, kind of what's your two cents there and and what do we need to do for those of us that can't transition our current career into regenerative agriculture, what should we be aware of and what should we be looking for and concerned about? And then what can we do uh, to vote with our dollar?
3: Yeah. So there are two major, major threats to food security and safety. Uh, one is as simple as bare soil that we talked about earlier. It It is a far more serious threat than the vast majority of consumers realize and understand. Uh, So I want them to hear that. I want them to know that bare soil produces nothing good uh, ever. So we need to end this deal of bare soil and farming. Uh, That's one, okay? Uh, And using the six principles and the three rules is the way we overcome that, okay? But the second is this, it is the significant consolidation and aggregation of our food industry where the vast majority of our food production and processing and distribution is in the hands of a very mere handful of giant, global companies. Yeah. And there, there's a multiplicity of reasons that that is a significant challenge. We, we first experienced it doing, during COVID, right? You know, uh, it doesn't matter how much food you can produce and how big your processing plant is. If your processing plant can't operate and you can't get that food Out and distributed to grocery stores and restaurants and to people's homes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't work. So we're we're at far greater risk when we have this highly concentrated, highly monopolized food industry. Uh, you know that that is one of the risks that we face and that we take with that type of industry. Uh, the other is that if we wanna talk about bioterrorism or food terrorism, when the vast majority of our food is concentrated through a mirror full of uh, processing plants and distribution centers, then if somebody wants to attack us on the basis of our food, and that's the best way to attack a population, we're making it way too easy for them, way too easy. And oh, by the way, that also includes cyber attacks on our food system because now most of our food system and the transport thereof and the cold storage and everything else is all computer controlled. So cyber attacks beyond physical bioterrorism attacks, cyber attacks are another way, you know, that this highly concentrated food sector is putting us at extreme risk. So that being said, we need to reallocate and rethink this, and reestablish more local and regional food systems and food hubs.
2: Love it, and well, I'll share updates with listeners coming soon. They'll know all about the things. Yes, <laughs> I'm opening a, a meat and produce market yeah. a, a little bit from my home <laughs> for that reason. So doing all You're the right. things we can. <laughs> like, right. Not only am I shaking the hands of, right. we are going to curate and tell right. you, you know, directly. Right. Put the pictures <laughs> of the families on the wall and all the things. Uh, let's talk about uh, how people can find your work and um, the courses that you offer. We'll, of course, link understandingag.com. Um, but any of the resources that you have, we'll, we'll put in the show notes. But just kind of to share how people can connect and um, steps that they can take.
3: Absolutely. So the best way to reach us is through our websites at understandingagag.com through the Soil Health Academy website at soilhealthacademy.org, O-R-G, and we also have a regenerative verification company called Regenified, and they can locate that information on our website at Regenified.com. So those are the three best ways for people to reach us. As I said, we have reams and reams of educational material that's not just for farmers and ranchers, but for consumers as well on those websites. So we do encourage people to take advantage of that. And we're always putting new material up. Uh, And if they want to sign up for our newsletters, they'll receive the latest and greatest in our articles and links, podcasts, and upcoming webinars.
2: Awesome. We'll be sure to share that. And I know, you know, some of the resources like of your six principles, as I mentioned, as someone who's doing container gardening, you know, six raised beds, whatnot, still would apply, you know, on, on even a yes. smaller scale. Uh, and so do you have resources to scale for like the home gardener as well?
3: Yes, we do. And uh, and we are actually offering more and more in that regard, because we've had a significant request Yes. So we, we are continuing to push out, you know, uh, uh, an ever-expanding uh, material for home gardeners. Love it. Awesome.
2: Well, thank you so much, Alan, for joining us. This was a really important conversation. And so thank you everyone for listening. If you have enjoyed today's episode, make sure you go on over to iTunes or Google Play or wherever you're listening and give us a five-star review and tell us why you love the Naturally Nourished podcast. And as we noted, we will link all of Alan's links in the show notes. So make sure to check that out so you can connect with him further and start to focus on your household's food freedom and autonomy and learning how to use your dollar to ensure that you have the best food security
0: possible. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at allymillerrd.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans.